0: On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going?
1: To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. How different would our relationships be if the question we asked on an early date was, how are you crazy? I'm crazy like this, and then understood that the real work of love is not in the falling, but in what comes after. Alain de Botton's essay, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person, is one of the most read articles in the New York Times of recent years. As people and as a culture, he says, we would be much saner and happier if we reexamined our very view of love. Nowhere do we realistically teach ourselves and our children how love deepens and stumbles, survives and evolves over time, and how that process has much more to do with ourselves than with what is right or wrong about our partner.
0: We must fiercely resist the idea that true love must mean conflict-free love, that the course of true love is smooth, it's not. The course of true love is rocky and bumpy at the best of times. Um, That's the best we can manage as the creatures we are. It's no fault of mine or no fault of yours. It's to do with being human. And the more generous we can be towards that flawed humanity, the better chance we'll have of doing the true hard work of love.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Alain de Botton is the founder and chairman of the School of Life, a gathering of courses, workshops, and talks on meaning and wisdom for modern lives with branches around the world. He first became known for his book, How Proust Can Change Your Life. I spoke with him in 2017. So we did speak a few years ago, but on a very different topic, and I'm really uh, excited to be speaking with you about this subject, which is... So close to every life. And, uh, you know, as I've prepared for this, I realized that you've actually, I mean, I knew that you'd written the novel On Love a long time ago, but you've really been consistently uh, attending to this subject and building your thoughts on it and your body of work on it, which is really interesting to me. I mean, you wrote On Love at the age of 23 which is so young. And you were already thinking about this so deeply. I mean, there's I think this is the first line. Every fall into love involves the triumph of hope over knowledge.
0: Well, I mean, I think, you know, what, what, what's striking is that our idea of what love is, um, our idea of what is normal in love, is so not normal. It's
1: so abnormal.
0: So abnormal. And so we <laughs> castigate ourselves for not right. having a normal love life, right. even though no one seems to have any of these. Or not you know, if have been said, well,
1: loved perfectly.
0: Uh, right, right, right. So we have this ideal mm-hmm. of what love is. And then these very, very unhelpful narratives um, of love. And they're in everywhere. You know, they're in movies and songs. And we mustn't blame songs and movies too much. But... but if you say to people, look, love is a you know, a painful poignant touching attempt by two flawed individuals to try and meet each other's needs in situations of gross uncertainty and ignorance about who they are and who the other person is, but you know, we're going to do our best. That's a much more generous starting point. So the acceptance of ourselves as flawed creatures seems to me what love really is. Um, you know, love is at its most necessary when we are weak, when we feel incomplete and we must show love to one another at those points. So right. we've got these two contrasting stories and we get them muddled. Well, and... And, and and
1: also, I mean, and you know, I feel like this should be obvious, but you just touched on art and culture and how that could help us complexify our understanding of this. And one of the things you point out, uh, you know, about, I don't know, I don't know, when Harry met Sally or four weddings and a funeral, one of the things that's wrong with all of that, is that they a lot of these just take us up to the wedding. They take us through the falling. And don't see that, I think you've written somewhere, you said a, a wiser culture than ours would recognize that the start of a relationship is not the high point that romantic art assumes. It is merely the first step of a far longer more ambivalent and yet quietly audacious journey on which we should direct our intelligence and in scrutiny.
0: <laughs> That's right. I mean, we are, we are strangely obsessed by um, the run-up to love. And we what we yeah. call a love story is really just the beginning of love story, but we leave that out. Mm-hmm. And so, but, you know, most of us, we're interested in long-term relationships. We're not just interested in the moment that gets us into love. We're interested in the survival of love over time.
1: Yeah i mean a lot of what you are pointing at the work of loving over a long span of time is inner work right <laughs> and and um it'd be hard to film that um but you know i'm very intrigued by how you talk about the ancient greeks and their pedagogical view of love the, right? yes i mean that's yes.
0: that's fascinating mm-hmm. because um one of the greatest insults that you can level at a lover in the modern world apparently is to say i want to change you yeah the ancient greeks had a view of love which was essentially based around education that what love means love is a benevolent process whereby two people try to teach each other how to become the best versions of themselves
1: they try they're they're committed to increasing the admirable characteristics that they possess that the other and that they possess and the other person possesses that's right that's right you know there's um, your your most recent book on this subject is the course of love, which is a novel. But it's a novel that actually I feel you kind of weave a pedagogical narrator voice into it. Do, do you think that's fair? Wo- that's woven right. Into, Absolutely woven into the into the narrative. And um, you know, you, you say at one point, uh, this is the relationship between um, Robbie and why am I? What's the Kirsten? And um, you know, you said at one point their relationship is secretly yet mutually marked by a project of improvement, which I think we all recognize. And then there's this moment where you say, after the dinner party, Robbie is sincerely trying to bring about an evolution in the personality of the wife he loves, but his chosen technique is distinctive: to call Kirsten materialistic, to shout at her, and then later to slam two doors.
0: <laughs> That's right, and, and of course we all by recognize the time you humiliated. <laughs> By the time we've humiliated someone, they're not going to learn anything. The only conditions, as we know with children, the only conditions under which anyone learns are conditions of incredible sweetness, tenderness, patience. That's how we learn. But the problem is that, you know, the failures of our relationships have made us so anxious that we can't be the teachers we should be. And therefore, some often, you know, genuine, legitimate things that we want to get across are just, you know, come across as as insults, as attempts to wound and are therefore rejected. And, you know, the, the arteries of the relationship start to fur.
1: Yeah. Someone recently said to me, uh, I'm curious about how you respond to this. Um, you know, it was a wise Jewish mother who had said to them, men marry women with the intention that they, with the idea that they will stay the same. Women marry men with the idea that they will change. Which is obviously a huge generalization, but it, gosh, it made a lot of sense to me, even in terms of my own life and in terms of what I see around me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I would argue that both genders want to change Mm -hmm. one another, and they both have an idea of who the lover should be. Um, And I think, you know, a useful exercise that sometimes psychologists, uh, uh, you know, level at, at feuding couples is they say things like, if... You could accept that your partner would never change. How would you feel about that? Sometimes pessimism, a certain degree of pessimism can be a friend of love. Um, You know, once we accept that actually it's really very hard for people to be another way, um, we're sometimes readier. You know, we we don't need people to be perfect is the the good news. We just need people to be able to explain their imperfections to us in good time before they've hurt us too much Mm. with Mm -hmm. them and uh, and with a certain degree of humility. Mm. Um, that that's already an enormous It's step a lot to ask uh, but it's
1: forward. so it's also it sounds reasonable, right? I mean if we could really have that in our minds early enough on in a relationship. Mm.
0: That's right. Mm-hmm. Um and and you know almost from the first date. Yeah. Uh you know the my view of what one should talk about on a first date is not showing off or not uh, you know, putting forward one's accomplishments, but almost quite the opposite. It, you know one should say, "Well, how are you crazy? I, I'm crazy like this right. um, you know and there should be a mutual acceptance that two damaged people are trying to get together because right. pretty much all of us there are a few there are a few totally healthy people, but pretty much all of us reach dating age with you know some scars, some wounds, mm-hmm. and sometimes we we bring to adult relationships some of the same hope that a young child might have had of their parent. And of course, an adult adult relationship can't be like that. It's got to accept that the person across the table uh, or on the other side of the bed is just human, which means full of flaws, (laughs) fears, et cetera, and not some sort of superhuman.
1: Yeah, and I think that that question that you you said could be a standard question on an early date, and how are you crazy? There's also something that you're getting at that it almost seems like we... We must be hardwired to do this. Although you know, one of the wonderful things we're learning in the 21st century is so that we can change our brains. But a way you say it in in on love in a scene in on love is, you know, boy meets girl, and and they, you start to be enamored in in, in details of this new person and find things in common, like, I don't know, both of us had two large freckles on the toe of the left foot. And then he wrote, you know, instinctively, and this happens very quickly, he teases out an entire personality from the details. But also, I, you know, also what I know from my own life is you tend to, uh, I think we, when we fall in love with another person, we magnify in our minds those things that are immediately enrapturing. Um, and craft our idea of the other person almost exclusively around those wonderful qualities, which is not fair to them or to us.
0: That's right. And, we, you know, we, we feel in a way that we know them already mm. and we, ha- we impose and on them we don't. an idea. Right. right. And we don't. We right. don't. Which, you know, also explains another phenomenon that I'm fascinated by. You probably would have noticed in, in both novels um, is the phenomenon of, of being in a sulk, of sulking. Because mm. sulking is, is a fascinating situation which takes you right into the heart of certain romantic delusions. Because what's fascinating about sulking is that, we don't sulk with everybody. We only get into sulks with people that we feel should understand us, mm. but rather unforgivably haven't understood us. Oh, so in other words, yeah. it's, when, it's when we are in love with people and they're in love with us that we take particular offense yes. when they get things wrong. Because the, the kind of the governing assumption of the relationship is this person should know what's in my mind, ideally, without me needing to tell them. Yes. If I need to spell this out to you, you don't love me. Um, and that's why, you know, you'll go into the bathroom, bolt the door, and when your partner says, you know, is anything wrong, you'll go, mm-mm. And the reason is that they should be able to read through the bathroom mm. panel into your soul and know what's wrong. Right. And that's such an extraordinary demand. So unfair,
1: and yes.
0: <laughs> we we see it in children. I mean, this is how little children behave. They they literally think that their parents can read their minds. Um, it takes a long time to realize that the only way that one person can really learn about another is if it's explained to them, preferably using words, yes, use your like words. calm ones.
1: <laughs> <What do> you <laughs> yeah. say your but, you know, yeah. when, people,
0: when people always say communicate, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, we have to be generous towards the reasons why we don't. Mm-hmm. And we don't because we're, we're operating with this mad idea that um, true love means intuitive understanding. And, you know, I go crazy when people say things like, I met someone, you know, the, the loveliest thing is they understood me without <laughs> me needing to speak you know, yeah. and I thought oh, so many alarm bells go yeah. off when I hear that because I yeah. think, okay, well, good luck in this instance, but mm-hmm. you know, if you guys get together, that's not going to go on forever. No one can, you know, intuitively understand another beyond a quite limited range of topics. Right.
1: Uh, your your children. How old are your children? They're still pretty young, right? Are they?
0: Uh, yeah, they're ten and twelve. Oh, okay,
1: yeah. yeah. So I, you know, as the as the, now that I have young adult children, when you hear that coming out of the mouth of your twenty one year old, you know. He should he he should know. <laughs> he should just right. know. <laughs> right. And you just but I also I also what I also know is that uh, grasping this what you're talking about is it's it's it is the work of life right it is the work of it's growing the work up. of
0: love and you know but it's interesting that 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 you know you're mentioning your your children and children generally because I think it sounds eerie but I think that one of the most one of the kindest things that we can do with our lover mm-hmm. is to see them as children and not not to infantilize them but when we're dealing with children as parents as adults we're incredibly generous in the way we interpret their behavior you if a child says if you walk home and a child says i hate you right you immediately go okay it's, that's not quite true. Probably they're right. tired, they're right. hungry, something's gone wrong. Someone their tooth hurts. Something. We're looking around for a benevolent interpretation that can just shave off some of the more, you know, depressing, dispiriting aspects of their behaviour, yeah. and we do this naturally with children, and yet we do it so seldom with adults. You know, when an adult meets an adult, and they say, you know, I've not had a good day, leave me alone, um, rather than saying, okay, I'm just going to go behind the facade of this slightly And understand that that's
1: actually not about me. That's about what's going on inside them today.
0: Right. Right. Right, exactly. We don't do that. We take it all completely personally. And so I think, you know, the work of love is to try, when we can manage it, we can't always, to go behind the front of this rather, you know, depressing, challenging behavior and try and ask where it might have come from. You know, love is doing that work to ask oneself... Where's this rather aggressive, pained, non-communicative, unpleasant mm. behavior come from? If we can do that, we're on the road to to knowing a little bit about what love really is, I think.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a conversation about love with writer and philosopher Alain de Botton. You know, I'd love to talk about your. You, you, you use this word pessimism a little while ago, and I'd, I'd love to dig into that a little bit more. And um, what what you're really talking about is is being reality based, um, as opposed to being I- ideal based. Um, you, there's a beautiful video that I've I've shared that's out there. I think it's the darkest truth about love. Is that right? That's the title, isn't it? Yes, that's right. From exactly. School, yes, school made that for YouTube. Yeah. I'd like to talk through, you know, some of these core truths um, that fly in the face of this way we go around behaving and that movies have taught us to behave and that possibly our parents taught us to behave. These core truths that can put us on the foundation of reality. Um,
0: Yes. I mean, that's very useful. We mm -hmm. could chisel them in granite. I mean, look, one of the first important truths is you're crazy. Um, Not you, as it were, all of us, that all (laughs) of us are deeply damaged people. The great enemy of love, good relationships, good friendships is self-righteousness. If we start by accepting that, of course, we're, you know, only just holding it together and in many ways, really quite challenging people. You know, I, I think if somebody thinks that they're easy to live with, they're by definition going to be pretty hard and don't have much of an understanding of themselves I think you know there's a certain wisdom that begins by knowing that of course you like everyone else is pretty difficult and Mm of course this knowledge is very shielded from us you know our parents don't tell us our ex-lovers they knew it but they couldn't be bothered to tell us They, they you know sacked us with well, by the time they it,
1: tell us we're we're dismissing what they say anyway well
0: that's right <laughs> and our friends don't tell us because they just want a pleasant evening with us so mm. we're left mm. with mm. you know a bubble of ignorance about our own natures and often you know you, you can be way into your 40s before you're starting to get a sense of, oh, well, maybe, yeah. you know, maybe some of the problem is in me. Because, of course, you know, it's so intuitive to, to think that, of course, it's it's the other person. Um, so to begin with that sense of, you know, I'm quite tricky in, in these ways, that's a very important starting point for being good at love. Mm. Um, you know, so often we blame our lovers, we don't blame our view of love. And Mm -hmm. so we keep sacking Mm -hmm. our lovers and blowing up relationships in pursuit of this idea of love, which actually has no basis in reality. It's simply not rooted in anything we know. This right
1: person, this creature does not exist.
0: And and is in fact the enemy of good enough relationships. You know, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm really fond of um, Donald Winnicott, this English psychoanalyst's term, which he first used in relation to parenting, that, you know, what we should be aiming for is not perfection, but a good enough uh, situation. Mm-hmm. And it's wonderfully downbeat. You know, no one would go, you know, what, what are your hopes this year? Well, I, I just want to have a good enough relationship. People would go, oh, I'm sorry, your life's so grim. <laughs> but you want to go, no, that's right. really good. Uh, that's right. that's kind of, for a human, that's brilliant. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's I think, the attitude we should have.
1: Yeah. Um, you you know one of the this darkest truth about love you know you say the idea of love in fact distracts us from existential loneliness um you know you are irredeemably alone you will not be understood but also behind that is the right these are as you say that these are dark truths but it's also a relief as truth always ultimately is if when we if we can hear it um that again that is the work of life. Is to yes, that's with, right I mean within, you know what goes on I, inside us
0: I think one of the you know one of the greatest sorrows we sometimes have in in love is the feeling that our lover doesn't understand parts of us. Hmm. and and a certain kind of bravery, a certain heroic acceptance of loneliness seems to be one of the key ingredients to being able to form a good relationship.
1: Isn't that interesting? And it sounds paradoxical.
0: Of course. Yeah. If, you are, if you expect that your lover must understand everything about mm-hmm. you, um, you will be, well, you'll be furious pretty, pretty much all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, th- there are islands and moments of beautiful... Connection. Um, but we have to be modest about how often they're going to happen. I think, you know, if you're lonely with only, I don't know, 40% of your life, that's really good going. Um, you may not want to, you know, be lonely with over 50%, but, you know, I, I think, you know, there's certainly a sizable minority share of your life which you're going to have to endure without echo from those you love.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I I debated over whether I would, would discuss this with you but I, I think I will. Like I'm single right now and have been for a few years and and it's actually been a great joy. You know, not that I think I I will be single forever or want to be single forever, although actually I think I've I think I would be all right if I were. You know, which is a real watershed. Um and also what this chapter of life has taught me to really enjoy more deeply and take more seriously all the many forms of love in life, aside from just, you know, the, the romantic love or being coupled. Um, well, it's do, funny because, you know, just as you were saying... About, yeah.
0: Yes. I mean, just as you were saying, I'm single, I, w- I was about to say you're not. Um, no, because, you know, right. we have to we have to look at what this idea of singlehood is. I mean, mm-hmm. we've, we've got this word single, which captures somebody who's not so you know, got a long-term life. relationship. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, another way of looking at love is connection. Um, mm-hmm. We're all the time, you know, we are hardwired to seek connections with with others. And and that is, in a sense, at a kind of granular level, what love is. Love is, is connection. And insofar mm-hmm. as one is alive and one is in you know, buoyant, relatively buoyant spirit some of the time, it's because we are connected. And um, we can take pride in how flexible our minds ultimately are about where that connection is coming. And I think it's also worth saying that, you know, for some people, relationships are not necessarily the place where they encounter their best selves. Yeah. Um, yeah. That That actually the person that they are in a relationship is not the person that they want to be, um, or that they can be in other areas of, of, of life, that they feel that there's, there are other possibilities that they'd like to explore. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think, Getting into a relationship with someone, asking someone to be with you, is a pretty cruel thing to do to someone that you love and, and admire and respect. Because the job is the job is so hard. Most yeah. people fail at it. You know, when yeah. when you ask someone to marry you, for example, you're asking someone to, you know, be your chauffeur co-host, sexual partner, co-parent, fellow accountant, you know, mop the kitchen floor together, etc., etc. And on and on the list goes. No wonder that we fail at some of the tasks and and get irate with one another. It's a burden. And I think sometimes, you know, the older I get, sometimes I think one of the nicest things you can do to someone that you really admire is leave them alone. (laughs) Just just let them go. Let them be. Don't don't impose Mm. yourself on them because you're challenging.
1: Um, I want to read your this definition of marriage that you you've written in a, in a few places. I, I think it's wonderful, and just talk about this. Marriage ends up as a hopeful, generous, infinitely kind gamble taken by two people who don't know yet who they are or who the other might be, binding themselves to a future they cannot conceive of and have carefully avoided investigating.
0: Well yes it's it's challenging um and it's certainly contrary to the romantic view but yes. again um this kind of realism or you know acceptance of complexity I think is ultimately the friend of love I'm not um I mean look it's also worth adding I don't believe that everybody should stay in exactly the relationship that they're in and that any relationship is worth sticking with and that in a way the fault is, is always the fault of the lovers if it's not, or both lovers, if, if it's not happy. Um, there are legitimate reasons to leave a relationship. But mm-hmm. when you're really being honest, if you ask yourself, why am I in pain? And you can't necessarily attribute all the sorrows that you're feeling to your lover. If you recognize that some of those things are perhaps endemic to existence or endemic to all human beings or something within yourself then what you're doing is encountering the pain of life with another person but mm-hmm. not necessarily because of another person
1: and for example i mean you you know you are in fact arguing as you said before some marriages are meant to end and there's you know there's certainly reasons for marriages to end or to end marriages but but you also point out this very contradictory fact that um the thing that's ultimately wrong with adultery as an easy out to what's going on in the marriage is that it is based on the same idealism that certain ideas of marriage are based on that go wrong
0: that that's right in a way that you're just redirecting your hope elsewhere and uh, imagine this is the
1: perfect one, right? This is the one person who won't with whom you won't be ever be lonely again who will understand you completely.
0: That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so it's, um, you know, on and on the uh, the cycles of of hurt continue.
1: Hmm. You know, something else you name about marriage that I feel is not often enough just named is that, you know, you, we, we spoke a little while ago about children coming into a marriage and, and, um, and of course, children teach us so much. I mean, one thing you say, it's beautiful, the children teach us that love in its purest form is a kind of service. The love we have for our children—I mean, I, I certainly know this with myself—the love that I have for my children has changed me, and it is—it is—it is distinct from all the other loves I've ever known. Um, but also that the children are hard on marriages, right? And, and for I think, and on a, you know, on a more complicated level, if there are problems in the marriage, um, that that can get amplified when children are there. Is also partly just because you get oh, everybody's tired, right?
0: But, that's right. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Um, <laughs> I I mean, in a way, there's a lot of mundanity in relationships. And one of the things that romanticism does is to teach us that, you know, the great love stories should be above the mundane. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in none of the great, say, 19th century novels about love, does anyone ever do the laundry? Does anyone ever, you know, pick up the crumbs from the kitchen table? Does anyone ever, you know, clean the bathroom? It just doesn't happen because it's assumed that what you know what makes or breaks love are just feelings, passionate emotions, um, not the kind of day-to-day wear and tear. And yet, of course, when we find ourselves in relationships, it is precisely over these areas that conflicts arise. But we refuse to lend them the necessary prestige. I mean, there's no arguments as vicious as when two people. Are arguing about something, but both of them think the argument is trivial. So they'll say things like, "Well, I mean, it's just you know, it's absurd. We're arguing over you know who should hang up the towels in the bathroom. That's for stupid stupid people. That has nothing to do with
1: yeah, yeah. Right,
0: and and you know that that's going to be trouble. And so we need, in a way, one of those sort of you know one of the lessons of love is to lend a bit of prestige to. Those issues that you crop up, that crop up in love, like, you know, who does the laundry and on what day? Um, we rush over these decisions. We don't see them as legitimate. You know, mm-hmm. we, we think it's but fine to yeah.
1: – but they are. You I know. mean, as you
0: say, that there's a lot of life it that is, the is stuff of life, extremely right. mundane.
1: Right. It's the stuff of, of our days. I mean, there's this wonderful line from The Course of Love um, – about, you know, these two parents, the children, the tired child inside each of them is furious at how long it has been neglected and in pieces.
0: That's right. And, you know, in a way, um, it, it's it's so funny. My wife, I can be indiscreet on air. Um, my wife um, used to say to me in the early days of our marriage, she sometimes would say to me things like, you know, my father would never have said something like that. I would say something or, you know, so I'm I'm you know, it's not my turn to make the tea or something. She'll go, My father would never have said it. He you know, he he would always do this for us. Right. And then I had to point out that there was really a uh, you know, she wasn't comparing like with like, that she was comparing um, right. This man, her father, right. as a father, yeah. but not as a lover. Yes. And you know, in the end, what I what I say to her I did end up saying to her was, in a way, I'm probably behaving exactly like your father, but just not the father that you saw when he was around you.
1: Yeah, the, the way he behaved towards your mother. <laughs>
0: That's right. right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so, one of the things we do as parents is to edit mm-hmm. ourselves, mm-hmm. Um, which is lovely in a way for our children, but it gives our children a really unnatural sense. Of what you can expect from another human being, mm. because we're never as nice to probably anyone else on Earth as we are to our children. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm saying this is right. this is the cost of good parenting.
1: After a short break, more with Alain de Botton. Subscribe to On Being on Apple Podcasts to listen again and to discover produced and unedited versions of everything we make. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual
0: foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, Others and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, we're exploring the true hard work of love with the writer and philosopher Alain de Botton. You know, I'd like to go a slightly different place with all of this. You know, I've been, uh, the things you've been saying pointing out about how love really works, uh, that people don't learn when they're humiliated, that self-righteousness is a is an enemy of love. Um, I'm thinking a lot right now, these days, about how and if we could apply the intelligence we actually have with the experience of love, not the ideal, but the experience of love in our lives, um, to how we... Can be as citizens moving forward, where um, there's a lot of behavior in public. I, I mean, I'm speaking for the United States, but I, you know, I think there's there are forms of this in the, in the UK as well. Um, we're kind of acting out in public, the way we act out at our worst in, in relationships. Um. You know, I, I think that's
0: <laughs> fascinating. I think you're onto something huge and, and rather counterintuitive because we associate mm-hmm. the word love with private life. And we don't associate it with life in the republic, with with civil society. Yes. But I think that a functioning society requires, well, requires two things that, are, again, don't sound very normal, but they require love and politeness. Yes. And by love, I mean a capacity to enter imaginatively into the minds of people with whom you don't immediately agree mm. and to look for the more charitable explanations for behavior which doesn't appeal to you and which could seem plain wrong not just to chuck them immediately in prison or uh, to you know haul them up in front of a law court but to or just tell or rather... them how
1: stupid they are, right?
0: Just right, or tell exactly, exactly <laughs> because we, exactly we we're permanently, you know, all sides are, are attempting to show how um, how stupid every other right. side is. Um, and the other thing, of course, is is politeness, which is an attempt not necessarily to say everything, to mm-hmm. to understand that there is a role for private feelings, which if they were to emerge, would do damage to everyone concerned. Um, right, right. But we've got this culture of, of kind of self-disclosure. And, and, and as I say, it spills out into politics as well. The same dynamic goes on. Of, of like, If I'm not telling you exactly what I think, then you know, I may develop a twitch or an illness from not right. you know, expunging my feelings. And and you know, to which I would say, no you're not. You're preserving, you know, the peace and um, you know, good nature of the Republic. And and it's absolutely what you should be doing.
1: Yes. And I guess, you know, I, I'm I've been having this conversation with a lot of people this year. I mean, the the truth is more than ever before, perhaps in our world, we we are in relationship. Right. We are in we are connected to everyone else. And that's a fact. Um, their well-being will impact our well-being, um, is of relevance to our well-being and that of our children. Um, but there's a, we have this habit and this capacity in public to – and, and also we know this. We know that our brains work this way, right? To see the other, to see those strangers, those people, those people on the other side politically, socioeconomically, whatever. Forgetting that in our intimate lives – and in our love lives you know in our in our circles of family and friends and in our marriages and with our children um there are things about the people we love the most who drive us crazy that we do not comprehend and yet we find ways to be intelligent right to be loving because it gets a better result. <laughs> That's
0: right. And, and, you know, families are at this kind of testbed of love because, well, we can't entirely quit them. Um, yes. And this is what makes families so fascinating because you're, you're, you're thrown together with a group of people um, who you would never pick if you could simply pick right. on the grounds of, you know, compatibility. You know, compatibility is an achievement of love. It shouldn't be the precondition of love as we right. nowadays, in a slightly spoilt way, imagine it must be.
1: Yes, wonderful. I think this is deeply politically relevant. Um, And it's... uh, Totally. And and I think, you know,
0: know, if we just try and explore the word political, political really means, you know, outside of private space. Mm -hmm. And we're highly socialized creatures who really take our cues from what is going on around us. And if we see an atmosphere of... Uh, short tempers of uh, selfishness, et cetera, that will bolster those capacities within ourselves. If we see charity being exercised, if we see good humor, Mm, if we see forgiveness on display, uh, again, it will lend support to those sides of ourselves. And, um, you know, we we need to take care what we're exposing ourselves to, um, because too much exposure to, you know, the opposite of love, um, you know, makes us into very hostile and, and angry people.
1: Yes, and I think it's also such an important thing to bear in mind um, that the import of our conduct moment to moment that that right that that is is having effects that we can't see.
0: That's right. We're far more sensitive than we allow for, and mm-hmm. we need to build a world that recognizes that if somebody goes, you know, mm-hmm, rather than this or thanks rather than yes or you know whatever it is, um, this can ruin our day, and we should think about that as we uh, approach. Not just our personal relationships, but also our social and political relationships, these things are humiliating. Little things can deeply wound and humiliate. You know, let's not forget that. One of the things that makes relationships so scary is we need to be weak in front of other people. And yes. most of us are just experts at being pretty strong. You know, we, we've been doing it for years. Yeah. We know how to be strong. What we don't know how to do is to make ourselves safely vulnerable. And so we, get, we tend to get very twitchy, you know, preternaturally aggressive, et cetera, when we're asked to, you know, when the moment has come to be weak.
1: And I feel like there's there's almost this calling now because the stakes are so high for em- emotional intelligence in public, um, which of course we don't. None of us gets perfectly in, in our in our intimate lives, but we we do know these things about people we love, and they're also true of people we don't know, and don't think we love. Um, but I I want to return a little bit to. Um, Love and sex and eros and all of this. I I have to say, one thing I really love and appreciate and learned from in your writing is your um, your reflection on flirting, <laughs> the, as a, right. as an art, the art of flirting. That it can be something edifying, a pleasurable gift, and you have this phrase, "a good flirt." So, would you describe what a good flirt is?
0: Well, you know, if we think about what flirtation is, in in many ways, flirtation is the attempt to awaken somebody else to their attractiveness. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, it would be such a pity if we had to drive something as important as kind of validation and self-acceptance and, uh, you know, a pleasant view of oneself through the gate of, rather narrow gate of sex. And flirtation is a kind of act of the imagination. And, you know, what's fun about flirtation is that it often happens between really quite Unlikely people, yeah. um, you know, two people meet, and you know, maybe they're both with someone, or there's a you know difference in status or background, etc. And they can find that they're in a little conversation about the weather, and um, both parties will recognise there's something a little bit flirtatious going on, mm-hmm. and it's got really nothing to do with with sex as such. It's it's just two people delighting in awakening one right. another right. It, to, to the fact that they're right. they're quite nice people yeah. um, and they're quite attractive yeah. and that that's uh, that's okay. But... Yeah.
1: You also have this one lovely film. was one of these School of Life films about this, you know, a good flirt. Um, you can make these assumptions that this other person, you know, maybe would love to sleep with us, won't sleep with us. And the reason why they won't has nothing to do with any deficiency on our part. But it's also not, as you say, a deception. It's a natural, pleasurable, Human experience.
0: That's right. I Mm. mean, the other thing um, that we get quite wrong in our culture is the whole business of what sex actually is. Mm. You know, because we we've come kind of from a Freudian world. You know, Freud has told us that there's a lot more going on in sex than we want to uh, believe, and that a lot of it is quite weird and. Uh, darker than we'd ever Hmm. want to imagine. And that sex is everywhere in life, even in places where we don't think it is, or perhaps should be. Um, But in a way, I've got a sort of different view of this. I think that it's not so much that sex is everywhere. It's that um, psychological dynamics are everywhere, even in sex. And so often we think Mm -hmm. of sex as just a sort of pneumatic activity, but really it's a psychological activity. And if you try to imagine why people are excited by sex, it, it's not so much that it's a pleasurable nerve-ending business it's it's ultimately that it's about acceptance if you think about why you know why is it exciting to kiss someone for the first time it's not you know it's probably more fun eating an oyster or flossing your teeth or watching TV than kissing I mean, it's a bit weird well, what's this odd thing we call kissing it's like sort of right. trying to inflate somebody else's mouth I mean it's just odd <laughs> Yet, nevertheless we like it not uh-huh. because of its physical uh, feeling but because of what it means the meaning yeah. we, we infuse and the meaning we infuse into it is I accept you, and mm-hmm. I accept you in a way that is incredibly intimate, and that would be quite revolting with anyone else. I and mean, <laughs> right, allowing you right. into my private space as a way of signalling mm-hmm. I like you. Mm-hmm. And what really we we call it getting turned on, but what we really, uh, are, as it were, excited by is that someone accepts us mm-hmm. with remarkable, mm-hmm. um, you know, it in takes all our
1: delight it, in us. Right. It yeah. takes delight in us. Yeah. And
0: that's what's exciting about it. In other words, sex is continuous mm-hmm. with a lot of things that we're interested in outside of the bedroom.
1: And you you, you say that flirting, you know, is is one way to um, to experience in the course of ordinary life in a way that's completely non-threatening to whatever your commitments are. That what is what is enjoyable about sex that's not necessarily the act itself, the fact that we are sexual beings.
0: That's mm. right. That's right. Mm. And And, you know, but we feel... Often conflicted about it. I yeah. shouldn't be. I shouldn't be. Flirting, I can't flirt, etc. So there's a lot of lot of fear of. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of fear of slippery slopes. Um, yes. You know, in many situations we can we can hang on on the slippery slope. It's okay. We've you know we've got tools to hang on in there.
1: Yeah. I, I, I want to know. I don't want to let you go before asking what you think about what's your view of online dating because this is an, a new way that so many people, perhaps most people. Uh, moving forward, are meeting, um, are engaging this romantic side of themselves?
0: Look, I mean, at one level, um, online dating promises to open up something absolutely wonderful, which is a more logical way of getting together with someone. Um, The sort of dream is that the secrets of our soul and the secrets of somebody else's soul will be sort of downloaded onto a computer and that we will find the best possible match for who we are. Um, The darker side of online dating is that it encourages the idea that that a good relationship must mean a conflict-free relationship. And therefore, any relationship which has conflict in it, which has unhappiness and areas of tension in it, is wrong and can be terminated because we have this wonderful backup, which is alternatives. So mm. like any tool, it's um, it's got its pluses and minuses and has to be used uh, correctly. And I think what I mean by correctly is it has to broaden the pool of people from which we're choosing our lovers while not giving us the illusion that there is such a thing as a perfect human being.
1: Right. So then you're back to the the basic truth, the darker truth about love. Um, also what online dating does it is introduces you to people but then really the whole thrust of your thinking is it's that that, that loving is really what comes next, right? It's what comes after the meeting.
0: That's right, Silicon Valley has been incredibly interested in getting us to that first stage of meeting mm-hmm. the person, and you know mm-hmm. that's great, but the next stage is has been abandoned. um mm-hmm. you know where is the app that will tell you how to read you know how to interpret somebody else's confused signals of distress or right. that will remind you at a certain point to you know look charitably upon you know someone's behavior because you remember their childhood, et cetera mm-hmm. um, so we have a long way to go our, our technology is still look we're still. It sounds odd because we—it's one of the sort of narcissisms of our time that we think we're living late on in the history of the world, and we, we think we're sort of, you know, we're, we're right. latecomers to the to right. the party. That's been, we're still at the very beginning of understanding ourselves as, uh, you know, human emotional creatures. We're still, you know, taking our first baby steps in in the understanding of love, and we need a lot of compassion for ourselves. And no mm-hmm. wonder we make horrific mistakes, you know, pretty much all the time.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a conversation about love with writer and philosopher Alain de Botton. I happened to see your tweet at the end of 2016, when that, when the New York Times released its um, most read articles of the year. <laughs> And your why you will marry the wrong person was number one, which is really extraordinary. I mean, the most read article in a year of the Brexit vote, the presidential election, war, refugee crisis. I wonder what that tells you about us as a species.
0: Um, it, look, it was deeply fascinating and, and quite extraordinary. And apparently it was first by a long way. I mean, it, it's just <laughs> peculiar. Yes. Um, and and I think that, um, look, first of all, it tells us that we have an enormous loneliness around our difficulties. Mm. Um You know, one could write a follow-on piece, I may or may not, you know, called Why You Will Get Into the Wrong Job, which would probably score quite highly too. Mm. And, you know, why you'll have the wrong child and why you'll (laughs) go on the wrong vacation and why your body will be the wrong shape um, and why you'll think you live in the wrong country, etc. And, you know, in a way, we need solace for the sense that we have gone wrong in an area, whatever it may be, where perfection was possible. And anyone who comes along and says, you know, um, it's normal that you are suffering, life is suffering, um, is doing a quite unusual thing in our culture, which is so much about optimism. Mm. You know, it sounds grim. It is, in fact, enormously consoling and alleviating and helpful in a culture which is oppressive in its demands for, Mm. uh, for perfection. So... You know, I, I think a certain kind of pessimistic realism, which is totally compatible with hope, totally compatible with laughter, good humor, um a sense of fun. It's not it doesn't have to be. It's
1: how doer. comedy and tragedy um, belong together. Right. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I'm a great fan of gallows humor. I mean, we're all we're on the way to the gallows in one way or another, and um, you know, we can hug and give each other laughs and um mm. Uh, point out the more pleasant sides as we as we head towards the scaffold.
1: <laughs> that may be your last word. I, I just want to ask you, we we, spoke, we first began to speak about On Love, which you wrote, I think, which was published when you were 23 in the late 90s. You've now been married for over a dozen years. And, you know, what, what did you really not know? I mean, and that book was so wise. And in fact, that book that you published when you were 23 on love really presented a lot of the themes you've carried forward in time. But I do wonder, like, what what you really did not know, what you've learned, what you continue to learn about love um, at this stage in your life.
0: I genuinely thought at that time that problems in love are the result of being with people who are, in one way or another, defective. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in 2002, this belief was severely tested in that I met someone who was really absolutely wonderful uh, in every way, and um, through much effort, I pursued her and eventually married her, um, and discovered something very surprising. She was great in a million ways. she was very right. And yet oddly, there were all sorts of problems. And I think it's been you know the path that I've been on to realize that those problems had nothing to do with her being a deficient person, or indeed with me, being a horribly deficient person, they were to do with the challenges of being a human being trying to relate to another human being in a loving relationship, that I was encountering some endemic issues that every couple, however well-matched, and there is no such thing as a perfect match, but however well-matched, every couple will encounter these problems, that love is something we have to learn, and we can make progress with, and that it's not just an enthusiasm, it's a skill, and it requires forbearance, generosity, imagination, and a million things besides. Um, And we must fiercely resist the idea that true love must mean uh, conflict-free love, that the course of Mm. true love is smooth. It's not. The course of true love is rocky and bumpy at the best of times. That's the best we can manage as the creatures we are. It's no fault of mine or no fault of yours. It's to do with being human and the more generous we can be towards that flawed humanity the better chance we'll have of doing the true hard work of love.
1: de Botan is the founder and chairman of the School of Life. His books include Religion for Atheists, How Proust Can Change Your Life, and the novel The Course of Love. The Pause is OnBeing's Saturday morning email offering, gathering threads from the far-flung ongoing conversation that is the OnBeing project. It's simple to subscribe. Go to OnBeing.org slash The Pause. You'll get a weekly update on our latest conversations, writings and poetry from our blog, invitations to live events, and other news and musings. Again, that's OnBeing.org slash The Pause. On being is Chris Hegel Lily Percy Mariah Helgeson Maya Tarrell Marie Sambalay Erin Farrell Lauren Dordal Tony Liu Bethany Iverson Erin Kalasako, Kristen Lynn
0: Profit Adewu Kasper Kyle
1: Angie Thurston
0: Sue Phillips Eddie Gonzalez Lillian Vo Damon Lee and Jeffrey Basoy.
1: Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education.
0: On being is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.